Mojo Radio Show News. I say to you, you gotta have Mojo, baby. Yeah. News with a difference. Cheating is on the rise in the workplace, and it's a good thing. Who said you had to have all the ideas? No one person has a monopoly on all the world's great ideas. In fact, sometimes the most unlikely people can come up with the goods, and often that's because they don't feel restricted to the usual norms. Ask your partner, friends or family. Start verbalising or get the ball rolling in an open forum. The seed of an idea might come from your discussion and give you the jumpstart you need. Remember, it's always easy to get too close to a project, so putting a fresh head onto the idea might be just what's required. So it's not really cheating. It's just making the most of all available resources. Mind you, Gordon Gecko did say, cheating is good, cheating is right, cheating works. Live from the basement of Voodoo Sound, it's time to get your mojo working. I got my mojo working. Hey everybody and welcome to this week's show. If you are new to our little program, you're probably wondering what have you gotten yourself into? What have you downloaded? Well, this is the Mojo Radio Show and we just find interesting people that we think have their mojo working in some aspect of their life. We talk to them, dig out what they're really good at and work out what we can apply to our world or maybe even a friend who has lost their mojo. Tips and tools, opinions from our guests that we can use to apply to our own world to get our own mojo working. Our driver behind the big red bus we call the Mojo Radio Show. Robbo, welcome to this week's show, mate. Beep, beep. Thank you very much. How are you going? Going good. Going very well. Uh, and in the panel, as they say, in the is panel. our... <laughs> Automated Digital Studio Assistant. Good morning, Lola. Hello, boys. And last, but certainly not least, <laughs> the dulcet tones of the man in the voiceover booth, AP. Welcome. Yeah, thank you very much, Bertie and Robbo. Now, AP, whilst you are still on the air and haven't disappeared, uh, <laughs> I was thinking of you in Adelaide last week. I bumped into the big boss of a very famous vineyard, a wine company called Wirrawirra, who is a fan of the show, and he said he can always tell when you go in to stock your shelves because the Wirrawirra share price spikes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, thank you very much for that, chaps. Uh, But Bertie, um, based on the amount of popping that's going on with your microphone, maybe you should be... uh Drinking less champagne. <laughs> Ooh, a cutting retort from the young man. All right. Just to make amends and put everybody in a good mood, can I, can I make everybody a cup of coffee? Ooh, yes, please. <laughs> now, just to explain in the studio, I think we're on Coffee Machine 3.0 for this season. Is that right? 3.0. And and I'm talking to the Lola's developers that Lola might be able to control the coffee machine as well as the panel. No. Yeah. How cool would that be? Now, the, I'm going to knock out, we, we were very fortunate, for anybody who has been a long-time listener of our little program, will know that we don't have any advertising, sadly, we don't have any sponsors, very sadly, we do the whole thing for free, we cop all the costs ourselves, but every now and then, somebody throws us a bone. Now, whether it be a couple of cartons of beer from listeners like Tom, our super fan, who sent us a couple of cartons of Dos Equis, uh, or Darren Olclass. Now, Darren was not only a guest on the show a couple of times, but he also hosted our guest dinner 
which we had at WeWork in Sydney, and he sprang dinner for all our listeners, which was sensational. Nothing like a free steak dinner. And it was good. <laughs> and um, But it was funny, though, because when the waiter walked up and they said, would you like the scotch, the rump, the T-bone, or the porterhouse, you just said yes. <laughs> Is that a tasting plate? <laughs> just bring me the hot box. Just bring, bring me one of each, my good man. Is there fries with that? Yeah. Yeah, bring me one of each, my good man. <laughs> and put a little something on there for yourself, a little bone. So anyway, Darren is a marketing and brand expert. He had a very, very good book out called This Way, Please. We had Darren on the show many seasons ago. But he, one of his clients is called White Horse Coffee, and he sent us in the mail some White Knight Blend. It's the espresso roast, and it's damn good. Do you know what? I've had a few, uh, a few clients of Voodoo Sound who have popped by for um, a recording session and have commented on the uh, quality of the coffee. <laughs> Well, I'm going to say, what I like about this, I'm not going to rave because we're not getting paid for this. We just got free coffee. But I'm, the reason I bring it up is it's a really nice coffee. I think the packaging is quite stunning. It's got this really nice white horse on a black background. Mm. It's really well done, which I suspect there's a lot of Darren's work because he's very, very good at it. Um, but just to make a, make a piece and make everybody in the studio happy for my popping, AP, would you like a brew? Oh, that's a very nice offer. Yeah, I'd love a coffee. Or should I say a brew? Um, could I have a latte with almond milk, decaf, in a shot glass? Oh, actually, I wouldn't mind also a gluten-free uh, croissant if you got one. That'd be nice. Made with rice flour. <laughs> Robbo's 20 cents worth. Now, you've been doing the rounds and doing some homework, which is odd in itself, but you found something else odd when you sent me a note saying, question mark, what happens when a left-handed drummer plays a right-handed kit. I didn't even know there was left and right-handed drum kits. There absolutely is, like anything in life, a left and right-handed kit. And the piece you're talking about is Ringo Starr uh, being interviewed, talking about some of the famous Beatles patterns. Lola, can you play that for me? I'm on it. I don't think I've ever found a drummer to play this one right. And you can probably explain why. Because it's a very well, unusual. Well, when you tell me what it is, I might be. All right, I'm just going to play the beginning. Uh, oh, I you're going to Yeah, uh, such a you recognise it, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, the interesting thing with this pattern mm. is that it's actually the bass that opens that song. Yeah. But why we got to this is because you see, I'm left-handed, and I'm playing a right-handed kit. If there's any drummers in here, see, they usually go, you know, they they go round the drum this way. Well, I can't do that. See, I can't go. So I have to get this hand down. So that's why everyone thought, wow, he's a genius, but all he's doing is trying to play backwards. <laughs> you know, so he goes, uh. So it comes around this way, and all my fills, which, you know, I have, you know, they don't come in fast. There's always a break because I have to get this hand ready. So it's like. You know what I'm saying? So it's like one of those mad accidents. You can't learn it. Uh, I was left-handed. My grandmother didn't like that. She made me go right-handed. And so I have a right-handed kit, but actually I'm a left-handed player. Wow. I hope that answers all your questions. 
the reason I sent that to you is because I loved the fact that we're talking about these famous drum patterns that Ringo Starr used to play for the Beatles and some amazing songs, let's be honest. But the whole reason that they're amazing and cool is because it actually took him longer to get the stick from here to here to hit the drum and so it didn't quite fit into a a perfect timing which gives the whole thing a complete new feel. I just thought that was unreal. Yeah, I guess it it kind of ties back to Professor Charlene Nemeth talking about nonconformity and how if he had have conformed and actually done what his mum said and learned to play the other way, he would be like every other drummer. Yeah. But because he bucked the system and said, well, I'll stay with what I'm doing and it may not be perfect, the non-perfection, the non-conformist part has made him one of the most famous drummers Mm. in one of the most famous bands in history. So it's funny how these things work out that, by bucking the system and not conforming, it helps you then stand out from the crowd, which he does. Mm. Mm. You know what I might do? I'm going to get myself a left-handed mixing panel. (laughs) (laughs) I think you stand out as it is, Darren. I don't think you need any more help to stand out. We interrupt this program to bring you a special (laughs) The Mojo Radio Show. Our guest this week is Robert Glazer, or as we know him, Bob. And he's the founder and CEO of Global Performance Marketing Agency, Acceleration Partners. Now, I found Robert because I'd read a number of his stories because he's a regular columnist for Forbes, Inc., all the big magazines like Entrepreneur, and his writing each year reaches over 5 million people across the world. He talks about performance and being an entrepreneur, company culture in particular, capacity building and leadership. His company, Acceleration Partners, have been recognised as a global leader in marketing. But the other thing that I think is really cool, and not just he hasn't just won just one award, but he's won numerous awards in company culture for being the best place to work from ad age, Inc. Magazine, Fortune Magazine, and the Boston Globe twice. And he's also been named the top CEO for SMEs in the US by Glassdoor. So this is a guy who has set an amazing culture for his business and then also been recognised for his leadership in the corporate world. And then how I found Robert was through his blog called Friday Forward, which he sends out to business leaders each week to 50 different countries across the world. He's a really good writer. I love the stuff he's got. Welcome to the Mojo Radio Show, Robert. Thanks for having me. When somebody meets you for the first time and says, what do you do? How do you like to reply? I don't because I've never really had an easy job that I could... (laughs) explain what I do and it's always required a longer explanation but I I just say marketing or maybe you know it depends on if it's you know someone who really wants to know the answer um, but but I say I run a I run a marketing agency uh, that that's that's and see if I can get away with that um, and then and then it usually degrades from there Robert I heard you describe yourself as a repressed entrepreneur describe what that is. And the thing I'm curious about is, do you find in your travels and your work, there are a lot of people who would describe themselves the same way, a repressed entrepreneur? Yeah, I I think that was a historical um, description. Um, 
now, now I'm probably not that repressed. <laughs> but I think I, I, I had said that in the context of there are two types of entrepreneurs, right? I, I think I was always entrepreneurial. I had the desire to do my own thing. I wanted to do it my way. All those things. I, I just I didn't have the risk tolerance. I was I was more conservative, um, and I had to really get to a point where I, I was willing to you know bet on myself and my own ideas and not just share them with everyone. But but I do think it's bifurcated, and 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 there's some folks who look a lot of the folks who make it big. It's kind of like at the casino; they are willing to double down and 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 lose everything and you know swing for the fences. I guess that's more of an American uh, analogy. But then I think there are other great entrepreneurs that that you know go for the um, uh, again. These are sorry of my baseball, but doubles or triples or just you know keep growing, have great businesses, but aren't aren't constantly looking to either, you know, double or go out of business. So when you knew you were a repressed entrepreneur, what was the psychology in your mind at that time? When you, because I reckon there are a lot of people who listen to shows, watch videos, read books, and have got this idea, but they're looking for that impetus to go from repressed into I am. What what was the psychology for you at that time of your life when you were making that decision, and how did you see your identity during that period? No, it's it's a really good question, and I think you know it's probably when the risk spectrum flips. I needed to work for some bad companies and some bad leaders to say at some point like. I'd just rather own this and be doing this for myself. Uh, and, and frankly, that presents less risk. I, I think that's how you know. I've had a lot of people tell me, even coming to our company, someone a couple of months ago, well, you guys are more risky. They're at a big company that has been slowly dying for years that could probably lay off half the people any day. And, and you know, they saw coming to to work for us as more risky. I just think I don't think they have the, the the correct perception. So I think something for me shifted there, where the excitement of being responsible for my own career and the outcomes and the upside just just far exceeded the the measure of safety that uh, a traditional job provided. Um, and I had uh, someone try to hire me for a last, what would have been kind of a last job before I broke out on my own. And he, he said to me at the time, he said, I'm, I'm pretty sure you're being close to being unemployable. Um, and and <laughs> he, didn't, he didn't mean that in a negative way. He just knew that, you know, I felt strongly about things that I just probably wasn't going to want to go um, work for another company. This is kind of an off-ramp that I wasn't expecting to go down, but I'll just get, get Robert to put the indicator on the big red bus here in the Mojo Radio Show. We'll take this off-ramp. But- tick-tock, tick-tock. At that time, when you were going through that thinking, Robert, were you married? Did and I actually think this is kind of married, and my wife was pregnant with our first child. Tell me about the conversation when you got home one afternoon or one evening, and this had been going through your mind, and you either had made the decision or you're about to make the decision. Tell me about the conversation with your wife and how important that was to give you the courage to do it. She was always um, very supportive and probably, you know, believed more in in, in me and, and and my convictions and that I find a way than than I did at the time. Um, you know, it, it, what was interesting was it was different. When I started doing consulting. It was different. You know, I remember sitting down having a discussion with with 
my parents and sort of letting them know after my last job sort of ended and, you know, they, they have the same jobs for 30 years each. So, they, they, you know, that from their perspective, that was much more uh, of a risk. But I, it's funny, I, it's to, if I was giving other people advice, totally flipped for me to say like, the, 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 if you're entrepreneurial, if you have that ability to think that way and do that way, you know, thinking about the risk of entrusting that, you know, with someone uh, to someone else rather than entrusting yourself with it. And, and again, it changed. I, I, I it was no longer, even as a good paycheck, you know, getting the same paycheck every week just wasn't interesting. It was much more fun to, you know, have it, have it go up or down or, 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 you know, see the outcomes of that hard work, you know, materialize, um, a month or two later. And, and, and that's when I knew that it had, it had just shifted for me. This is related, but not related. And I'm going to talk about you and your family. So it's related, but it's a different topic. And we're not going to go too deep here, don't, don't worry. But I was going to set this up. There was a, a quote that William Arthur Ward has said to have said, and it was, gratitude can transform common days into thanksgivings, turn routine jobs into joy, and change ordinary opportunities into blessings. And I'm just wondering whether you would share the story of your family and the hotel rooms and housekeepers. Sure. And it's interesting, you know, <laughs> when I posted that across LinkedIn, it, it, it surprisingly generated a lot of uh, controversy and, and particularly from Europeans and maybe some Australians who 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 find tipping to be offensive. Um, so so there were some really interesting cultural things. But yeah, that story was shared with me. You know, we try we have family values. We try to really focus with our kids on you know we not too many rules, but clear guideposts around the family values and what we um, care about most. And a uh, it was shared with me at, at, at another leadership event, um, that I was at that, uh, a practice that one family had of always leaving and when they left the hotel room and, and, and always leaving a note, um, afterwards, uh, you know, that said, thank you. And one of the kids would write the notes and they would leave a, a tip. And, you know, we, we've family of five, we make a mess out of a hotel room. So we, we were somewhere soon after that, and on skiing and tons of equipment and we go out in the morning and really didn't expect the person to uh, rearrange and, and clean to the extent that they did and they do it every day and so when we went to to leave um you know my, my youngest son who was nine wrote up the note and and i was going to leave forty dollars my wife said you know what the person worked really hard leave more and 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 we did that and it was just my son likes writing the notes you know and it's a good experience it's both it's both the act of gratitude kind of and saying thank you. And, and then someone shared a story. I, I was sharing that story with a group and, and they shared a story almost at the same time. He had, he had been at the same place where we heard it, where he said he was in, I think it was, um, was either Guatemala or Costa Rica staying in an Airbnb, which was, you know, 50 bucks a day, just because that's what the economy is down there. He stayed there. They had someone who came and cleaned the place every day. He left, um, you know, a $15 a day tip or something like that, which was probably 40 or $50, which was, 
probably a week's salary for that person and got a note from the owner saying that the person cleaning the place wrote to thank him and, and, and tell him that, you know, her, her kids had I, I, some, some sort of infection or something, um, parasite that they were not able to get treatment for and that that made the difference to be able to get treatment. So it's just, it's just that awareness of, of both the act of gratitude and the, and, and, and the ripple effect. And frankly, I was just so surprised that, a lot of the people that I can understand if cultural culture doesn't have tipping, but you know, just we're, we're, we're got so angry <laughs> about this because for most people, they don't want to be doing this job. And, you know, a bunch of people said that this is to me, the type of people who, you know, don't have practical solutions. They just have big ideas that aren't implementable, you know, well, hotels should be paying a living wage and you shouldn't stay there. well, if that hotel goes out of business, then that person has no job. And, and frankly, that, that is the wage that every hotel pays um, for that job. It doesn't mean that you know, it's a great wage or that that's what that person would like to be doing or that you can't acknowledge and go above and beyond if you can afford to do that. So just again, it's just a small practice that we do. But yeah, teaching our kids gratitude is something that's very important to us, particularly growing up in a very first world economy with first world uh, problems. I thought it was a beautiful story, Robert, which is why I wrote to you to say, look, can we have a chat on the show? Because we had a, a lady on called Marie Gromberg last season and Marie Gromberg climbed Kilimanjaro four times and after, just, just before we'd spoken to her, had, had summited Mount Everest. And one of her favourite quotes was, gratitude was the superhighway to happiness. And it's something we put on the studio wall because it's such a nice saying, yet hearing you talk about people who might have gotten angry or being offended by it, if you simplify it right down to gratitude being simply looking somebody in the eye and saying thank you, but I watch people get on board a bus or get a cup of coffee and they don't even look at the driver. They don't even look at the person handing them a coffee, let alone the barista. Or somebody will clean their table in a lounge they won't even look at the person they're clearing it because their face is in a screen. You think, well... If you really dumb it down to the most simplistic part of human nature and appreciation and gratitude is looking someone in the eye and saying thank you, we've got to the point we're not even doing that anymore. Yeah, and, uh, you know, a great example of that, I I travel a lot. I'm in a lot of traffic coming from the airport, uh, so I take Ubers or Lyfts um, um, so so I can knock through some calls in the traffic and not be distracted. And look, they're they're being paid to 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 drive me, but I, I always make it a practice of when I get in the car, if I'm on a call, um, put it on mute, say uh, hello to the person. I'm really sorry. I'm I'm taking this call. I don't, I don't mean to be rude. And then at the end, getting off the call, uh, pausing it, saying thank you. I don't have to do that. It just I don't know. It just feels like the right thing to do. Um, uh, to to acknowledge the person and yeah. to thank. It doesn't it makes me feel better. It doesn't require any extra effort. Uh, I I don't know. It just I, I think particularly with technology, we're all just kind of walking by each other and, and not even acknowledging each other these days. Uber's an interesting area, Robert. I've had the most fascinating discussions with Uber drivers. And yeah. <laughs> and it's just, a, it's just a theory. There's no basis to this. There's no anything. It's just my hypothesis. I, I hypothesize that... A lot of Uber drivers are doing it as a side hustle because they've got something else going on that they're working on. And I just find once you get into the flow of the conversation and you are curious and you lean into their world, 
Man, some of the stuff they share is absolutely fascinating and I think it's a really great place for people who are looking for ideas or stimulation or understanding what's happening on the street. But consequently, you see a lot of people just get in and they get locked to their devices, ignore the person, and they probably don't, don't even think that the Uber driver's going to um, give them a rating as well when they get out of the car. So I, I right. think I think Uber's a gold. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I always have a conversation with with people when I can, and I'm really interested in their story and why they're doing yeah. it. Like some have built little businesses around it. Some have, you know, there. I talked to a bunch of people who are early retirement, and they they do it for a couple hours in the morning just to stay engaged. Some some have said to me, you know, I like doing the business crowd from 8 a.m. to 1 p.m. and then I can be home with my kids. Others have said business crowd people are so obnoxious. I I, I pick up the kids at night, and I, I just it, it, it's like this whole entrepreneurial ecosystem where everyone has made their own little business around it. And I, and I find the stories really interesting and I find that they're all really grateful um, yeah. for the flexibility, you know, because they'd otherwise be working at some job that they really didn't want to, or they're in transition and they, you know, it is, it's, it is a great job for them to, to be able to control they can or as a transition job or those who are building business around it. it to me, it's like this mini entrepreneurial ecosystem. <laughs> Good way to put it. So, Robert, if I can take you back a bit to when you were around five years old. Yeah. Recently, you were clearing out your parents' house and you were in their garage doing the cleaning up and you found a report card from when you were five years old. And you said, looking at that report card, <laughs> it was interesting that it actually set the intention of what your purpose would be for your career. Yeah. What did it tell you? So reading that, what became very clear and, and explained a lot of my struggles, frankly, probably, you know, in, in school and with attention is that when I enjoyed something and I was passionate about it, I, I, I went very deep. And when I didn't like it or otherwise, I really couldn't pretend to like it and, and wasn't engaged. And so that's that's not awesome when, you know, in the, in the traditional school, school environment when it's like, oh, mm. pay attention to math, pay attention to a little science rather than <laughs> – I, I think this is a particular bias against people who had entrepreneurial traits because they don't, they don't necessarily manifest itself. If you're selling stuff door to door, someone might scold you right, and, and say, don't do that to your homework. If you're Picasso or Van Gogh and you're painting these ridiculous paintings at six years old, people would say, this person should paint. Don't worry about, don't, you know, don't worry about the other stuff. Or if you're amazing at kicking a ball or throwing a ball, they, they, they put you in those programs. So I, I, I think that I, with all the, so many of, I should say all, the successful entrepreneurs I talked to really struggled in their early childhood and school with what they were really good at school and society and the traditional norms didn't, didn't value. So I think, you know, in reading back to those reports, that's, that's, that's been pretty clear to me. And I think I started to do really well in life when I could focus, I had the freedom to focus on what I like to do, what I want to do and got rid of the rest. Turns out I'm not that good at things that I don't want to do. I'm not sure that any of us are. And mm. do you have the term? Val Victorian over there. Yeah. Um, well, so, sort yeah. of, yeah, but not not the same way you do, no. There's a lot of data coming out that, you know, Val Victorians don't perform really as well or achieve high success later in life because the nature of being a Val Victorian means that you are 
a conformist and a rule follower and are trying to check all these boxes when most people who achieve at a really high level are, are great in one or two things and let themselves suck at the other things. Do you know what's interesting, Robert? You said in an interview that when you are a nonconformist as a kid, you're taught that that's a bad thing. Yet you've just talked about the fact that being a nonconformist can be a good thing. And we interviewed a lady just a couple of weeks ago called Professor Charlene Nemeth from the University of California who wrote a book called No, The Power of Dissent in a World that Just Wants to Get Along. And yeah. it was a fantastic interview. Like I absolutely loved it, but it was all about being a dissenter or a nonconformist. What I'm curious about, because you sound like you're a dad that's very – you're very focused and very aware of your values and the environment you're bringing your kids up. How are you approaching that with your own three children? Yeah, I, I, I'm pretty transparent with them about stuff. Like, so for instance, grades, like I don't, I, I care that they love learning and learn to learn. I don't care as much really about their grades. And I don't <laughs> want their teachers to hear that. But to <laughs> me, like, that's not the be all and end all. I care about their character and, and their values and their, and their learning to learn and help figure out what that passion is for them. Like they're not on a program. They all do different things. Um, I'm trying to, you know, help each of them be the best version uh, of themselves. But at the same time, I'll explain, look, here's what happens when you get good grades. You know, you can go to the schools you want to go to. People come to you. They want to interview you. You know, you want to get on this. So, so there's a lot of value to that. But I, I want to understand that I don't think, you know, I don't think that good grades or bad grades are determine your success in life, depending on what you want to do. If you want to be a doctor, yeah, you probably need straight A's. Um, so I, I really try to be more honest about that rather than these kind of blanket approaches that have been read from generation to generation, which is like, hey, do well in school, get good grades, get a good job. I, I, that, that, that to me is a, a uh, that's a cop out. That's just generic. That's not going to make each of your kids. My kids are all really different, really different. I think, uh, you know, mm. 50, it's 50 percent nature, 50 percent nurture. Success for each of them is, is going to yeah. look very different. And so I'm trying to I just think if you learn to learn and you love learning, that will accelerate you figuring out where you want to apply that. If we park on the learning part, Robert, I'm curious, maybe from an entrepreneurial standpoint or somebody who is thinking of getting into the entrepreneurial world, do you think that you would recommend to someone to go wide in their knowledge base, which is like what people like Elon Musk and these sorts of guys, they read a lot and they read very widely? Or yeah. do you think it's more important to pick your expertise and go real deep? It's a good question. I, 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 not to cop out, but I think the answer is both. I think that you you, you need to go deep, um, but you need to go. You don't. You can't have horse blinders on. I think some of the best ideas come from being informed about what's going on in other industries and other ways of thinking. Um, so I, clearly, you know, specialization has its values, but you also want to be a little bit of a renaissance uh, man or woman and and be able mm -hmm. to apply things from, from different disciplines. So I, I actually think a kind of, you know, 50, 50 approach, but whatever you do, just don't read the news. 
Um, <laughs> it's just it's terrible. I, there's nothing more negative, you know, more depressing than than, than reading the news these days, um, or, or 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 read the news to get the news and then stop. You know, you, you don't need to read the hundredth article uh, about the same um, set of events, which which often are, are are portrayed, you know, negatively or, or sensationally. But yeah, it, it is a good question. I, I think there's a lot of people who. Are, are, are just too horse blinder and they, they kind of miss the next thing, yeah. right? If you're just down there working on your thing and your widget and you just miss that people aren't even buying and widgets anymore, they're buying digital widgets, then that's a problem. Or you're one of these people who kind of, you know, sounds like a know-it-all on every topic, but has never actually applied that in any way, then, then that's also um, has its disadvantages. I, I actually don't recall who said this on the show, but they had done some research to say that it's not successful people, it's not just about what they learn, it's also about how they consume it. And the example that we gave on the show was Hunter S. Thompson who rewrote word for word The Great Gatsby because he just wanted to know what it felt like to write a masterpiece and I'm just curious with all the writing you do, you've obviously got to read widely. You obviously yeah. have to gather a lot of thoughts to put them into your own blog, which I'll talk about in a second. How do you, how do you consume? So you obviously consume a lot. How, what's yeah. your process for recording and keeping your learnings? One of the things about my writing that that I'm honest about, or particularly if I write like a Friday Ford, is I I might have been playing around with that issue, but it's not or that subject. It's not until I sort of sat down, worked on it, thought about it, clarified it for myself that I really um, came up with my viewpoint and and mm-hmm. and got some of the clarity that I was looking for. So the the process, I'll, I'll tell anyone you know, that reads those, like I, you know, this might sound confident as a thing, but I just figured this out (laughs) for myself last week. Um, but I, I actually, I I think there's plenty to read. I'm just, I'm not sure people think enough, um, for better or for worse. I spent a lot of time thinking, editing for me is part of the thinking process. My brain, you know, races. And, and, and so, you know, it's taking this story and that story and, 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 and sitting with it. A lot of times the magic formula for an, for an article, I keep a notepad of, of concepts, topics, things that are interesting to me that have come up maybe a couple hundred deep. And then something happens in current events. And I was like, Oh, that actually ties to that theme. And then I think Mm -hmm. about it and I pull them together um, so there's there's just learning in that in that process for me as well. Is that a pen and paper journal, Robert, or is it a, a digital? How how do you store those hundred concepts? Uh, that's one note. I, I do journal um, and, and, and with a pen and paper, but I but I've, I have my I like moving stuff around, bucketing it. I have a very organized kind of OneNote Evernote system, yeah, so yeah. that's a sub tab in OneNote, so I can move in and copy it. Um, I, I know there's a lot of science on, you know, writing it is better, but you know, that's usually five or six word concept of an idea. I couldn't possibly remember all these things. They come and go during the day. So my job is to just get it down and get it in the right place when it pops up. I email, I email myself a lot. <laughs> <laughs> You've talked about thinking time and last year, well, year before last, season four, we had the real privilege of having Kel Newport on who wrote Deep Work. And just a terrific book, terrific premise. Yeah. He was amazing. And 
it sort of stuck with us that I'm curious with people like yourself who are doing what you're doing around marketing, brand, writing a blog, doing a lot of media, where does deep work sit in your day? Do you have a, a ritual around it, a routine for it? Is it random? Is it a non-negotiable? Like how does it work in your world? I follow the time blocking method in terms of I have my priorities, my schedules. You know, I, I have a lot of people, particularly sales guys, can you jump on a call for 15 minutes tomorrow? And it's like, no. <laughs> I, I, I block out my schedule eight to 12 weeks in advance. So there's no free time, but it may be blocked for thinking time or quiet time or break because free time people will just take. So there's, there's, there's meeting time. Um, in the cadence of my day, I've learned that, and, and Dan Pink wrote a great book when on this about the science of timing that, that I do my best cognitive work in the morning. So I have a, you know, cannot be disturbed except for emergency block in the morning. A lot of our leadership team have synced that time up. So then people aren't looking to meet then. So from about, I I got rid of breakfast meetings. I just decided from eight till 11, that's when I work on my most important priorities for the day. And and, and then then usually in the afternoon, I do more meetings. I've also moved to no meeting Monday. So that's the day where I kind of, I take my time to catch up on the books or the deep project or the stuff that I know that I need time for, but I, I don't let my calendar be booked. And if, if I want to do something, if I want to work out or whatever, it's, it, it's, it's in my calendar. So I've, I sort of pre-allocated how I want to spend my time. And, and the more, you know, I kind of fell into this from a few things, but there's been a lot of articles on time blocking lately. And, you know, I just saw one recently that this guy interviewed all these people and he couldn't find a single billionaire that had a to-do list. Almost all of them use some variation of time block. That's gold. That's gold. Now, building upon that, you run a thing called a whole life dashboard that you said you run every morning. Describe to me what what is a whole life dashboard? How does it work? And how would we create and use one? Yeah, so it came actually... You know, a lot of the personal development best practices are all just coming, and for families too, are all coming out of, you know, business, leadership, Rockefeller habits, methodology from 100 years ago around vision, values, alignment, tasks. So the dashboard was just a way for me to kind of hold everything in one place. Like, what are, what are, what are my, like, been a few minutes each morning kind of realigning in terms of what, what, what are my values? What, what are the things I need to get done in five years that I said, what are the things I need to get done in a year? What are some of the things that are most important? What did I say I get done this quarter? And then bringing back down to what are the three most important things I need to do um, today? So it has those just all in one place. It's like a funnel. And I, and I continue, I, I think that the difference between person A and person B, no one has more time. You know, person A just constantly applies that energy in the right way, little bits each day to the things that are most important, kind of the domino effect. And then by the end of the year, they've knocked all the stuff down. Person B goes a little left here, distracted here, forgets that, keeps looking at that big goal, you know, can never start it because it's so far away, doesn't know where the time went, years over and has accomplished, you know, not, nothing uh, or, or very little of, of what they wanted to do. And and so for me, that the day is, is sort of the recalibration time. Um, the, the, the tool just, it gives you some ideas on how to set your long-term goals, how to be clear about your values. You, from The alignment comes from 
your three-year goal should sort of be a down payment on your 10-year goal um, so that you're moving there. Your one-year goal should be a down payment on your three-year goal. Your quarterly to-dos should be kind of, uh, uh, you know, knock off your one-year goal. And then daily, if you can just pick a couple things, looking back at that quarterly objective, it, it's not rocket science. It's just, it's breaking it down into the little pieces that get you there. And everyone that has you know, I'm not the first person to sort of come up with this. I just needed to get it one one place, so I built a tool. But I know everyone who sort of follows that method- methodology says they're always surprised at how much you know you can get done. Um, if if you know, it's the person who stresses about running a marathon for six months or writing a book, and then the other person who just writes for ten minutes a day or who runs for twenty minutes a day, and after six months. <laughs> <laughs> there's a big difference. You know, that person lost that half an hour without even knowing where it went, probably to Facebook or Instagram or looking what people are eating, you know, for lunch. And the other person wrote a book by writing for 30 minutes a day. So without spocking out too much, is that dashboard a, because I, I can imagine like a Star Trek spaceship deck. What does it look, what does it look like? Is it a Excel spreadsheet? Is it a page in your journal? Like, what is it? You know, I, I might turn it into a journal with the launch of my next book. We've actually been talking about that. Um, but it's business people could in Excel. So I, I did it in Excel. So it just, it has some tabs and you enter the, and you enter the background information in one tab or it walks you through a process and then it rolls it up. But the main thing is this sort of one page dashboard. Like you'd have a one page business plan for the, for a company. You have this sort of one page dashboard for your life. And, and you just look at it every day. You don't, I mean, that five minutes of just saying this to me is the alignment. Oh yeah. You know, one of my core values is, is, you know, self-reliance. And I, I'm, I just realized I'm hemming and hawing on whether I want to raise money or I want to fund it. Like, uh, you know, if I'm really thinking about that, I should fund it myself. And, and just, Oh, I, you know, I said, I wanted to, you know, my goal was to be a professor in five years. And, you know, someone just mentioned to me something about a class. Like I probably should follow up with him because um, maybe I can guest speak in that class. Uh, just, just seeing this stuff all in one place in an alignment and, and spending a couple minutes on each day reminds you, you know, what it is that you want. Again, it's not what anyone else wants. Part of the exercise is to define what it is that you want. You also run a pretty successful company called Acceleration Partners. And I think you've been voted or considered to be one of the best places to work. Is that right? That is right. Tell me about the building blocks that have a, that creates a culture specifically in your business. Like what what would you say are the key the key foundation or the key foundations that have allowed you to do that specifically in your business? Yeah. So I I like to say that I don't think there's any absolute uh, of a great culture. I think there's some things that we think are, you know, universally good about cultures. They treat people well, they pay people well, they have good benefits. And and I think that's all well and true. But to me, it's just about a company being pretty consistent between what it, what it does, what it says and what it values. So I, I think there's three kind of core tenants that all great cultures have and then and then two modifiers. So you could call it five things, but I call it three and two because I think the two are modifiers. So the first is vision, has a clear 
perspective of where it's going, what it wants to be. And that's why people want to come work there. Again, these are not the things that sit on the wall that no one knows it. You'd say, I want to come work at this company because it's trying to end blindness, or I want to work at this company because we're trying to solve the energy crisis or change the marketing industry. Um, you know, it's a real vision and, and, and it, it's inspiring. The second is, is values. And, and, and I think companies need to have real core values, ones that they hire, fire, reward on, not ones that sit pretty on the wall, again, as a painting that no one could, or that people need an index card to tell you what they are. And then they need goals and targets because that's where a lot of the um, accountability and transparency comes from saying, hey, look, here's where we're going. Here's the type of people we want, the behavior we want. And then here are our goals and metrics and, and, and targets that everyone is working towards. That's the score. Like, how do you, how do you know how can you play the game if you don't know the score and what you're expected to achieve? And then the two modifiers are, are clarity and consistency. So I think that great cultures have um, consistent values. They have consistent vision and they have consistent goals. They don't change. Um, and, and they have very clear values, clear goals and, and um, clear vision. And, and that really helps employees who say, look, I, I understand where we're going. I understand what is valued. You know, the CEO is not changing the game every week and, and in behavior. And then they have systems that support that. So, you know, you need great people, but until you define those things, until you define the game that you're playing, I'm not sure you don't know which people you don't know how to get people to sign up for that mission. Um, one company can have a totally different vision values and, and, and goals than another that makes it totally unattractive. You know, the definition of a good person is someone who self identifies with that culture and says, like, I always, I always say if, 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 if people don't work out at our company or they leave, I, what I hope that they would say is acceleration partners is, is completely, um, consistent in what it says and what it does and what it's behave. I just realized that's not for me. I, that's the wrong team. It's not, not my, not my values rather than they said one thing and, and, and do another. That's the, I do all the cultural onboarding for our company. When I talk to people coming from other companies, you know, if, if the company had no culture, that's, that's one thing. Um, it always has a culture, but if it had no stated culture, what drives people really gets them most angry and crazy is, is when the company talks about one set of principles and lives a different set. In the last 12 months, what's something that you think you've done implemented that's either maintained this great culture or enhanced the culture. Is there something you can think of that's been implemented? I started um, last December for our 10th anniversary and continued it this year. Um, something I had heard from a few extraordinary other companies that they had done, and I, I just had some doubts how it would play out in our company, but this notion of trying to figure out what some of employees' dreams were, either you know, by, by asking them or, or a different way. And then, and then really kind of granting those like kind of wishes or, or dreams, uh, and, and reinforcing what was most important to them. And I, I had heard it more done in, in places that are like call centers or more kind of hourly workers and, and it had a huge impact on motivation. We are much, we're tend to be more um, professional services uh, people kind of higher level in their career but I, I decided to do it as as part of our um, end of year event and to celebrate our 10th anniversary and I, I cleverly was able to gather information on things that people wanted to do in their life as part of a, an exercise we did on goal setting and then worked on 
figuring out how we could kind of make 10 of those happen. And, and we did that last year and it just, it was a huge hit and it was, uh, it was just a great moment and we did something similar again this year. And it's been, it's been a highlight for me of, of, of kind of the last two years, just fun to figure out what someone else really is important to them and try to figure out how to make it happen and, and do it without them knowing and, and then present it to them in a way that they're totally shocked. That's gold. Robert, you seem like a guy who's very clear on their own personal identity, which I'll get to in a second. How closely aligned is your own personal mission or purpose with that of the company? So as the person who is running the company, overseeing the culture, how closely aligned is your personal belief to that of the company? I think if it's not and you started the company, then you have a problem. <laughs> you probably have a, have a business that you don't like. Um, five years ago was when I started the journey kind of introspectively of through some leadership programs of really defining my core values. And it was also when we really kind of reset um, the bar for the company. And you, you can draw a pretty straight line between elements of my personal core values and, and, and the company. Therefore, the company attracts the type of people that I want to be working with. So I, I think, I think, yeah, you should, you should always assume that the found, particularly if you're talking about a founder, CEO, um, for better or for worse, that, that the company's values will probably um, reflect their values. And, and, and to me, that's all part of the intentional design of back to the fifth, you know, five-year-old, you know, doing the things that I want to do, being around the type of people that I want to be around. And then, you know, and then on the inverse, kind of not working with companies and people and stuff that, that, that really don't. Well, I like different perspectives um, and we have plenty of healthy debate. I mean, we're not, it is not groupthink. There, there's a core set of values that the people I work with believe in. And, and I think that forms a foundation of trust. You've spoken before about your own personal identity and I've heard you say that it was a, a critical moment for you to truly understand your own personal identity, which I guess leads into your own personal brand. If I was to talk to your wife about you and say, give me the three words that best describe the identity of the man that you married... What would your wife say about you? Do you think? Stubborn? Is that allowed to be one of them? Um, <laughs> <laughs> stubborn needs to be right. Um, no, I, I think I hope she would say I was passionate, uh, um, driven, determined. Um, that's probably. She also tell you I'm exhausting, um, which is what my kids and employees would probably tell you as well. Because when I'm passionate about something, I'm very uh, driven to, to try to figure it out and can, can be exhausting for those who are, who are uh, around me. But yeah, I, I think that be something to that effect, but um, don't, don't, don't test me on it. Or maybe you've already, you know, interviewed her in the background. Actually, I've got your wife on the line now, as a matter of it. Uh... One of those gotcha radio shows. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> You know, it's just pausing there for a second, but I that can actually be a negative. I have actually heard when I'm talking about innovation with a crowd, I've actually had it said to me by leadership teams and or subordinates who will go, the problem with the boss is the boss is always working, walking around with new ideas yeah. and we never get to do anything. 
it's always the next idea. And you said exhausting. How do you straddle that? Because you've talked about thinking time. Yeah. You've talked about how you compartmentalise, yet you're exhausting. Just to, to explain that to me because exhausting can, in my mind, from my experience of talking to people and having people work for people like yourself, exhausting can be really positive, but exhausting can also be detrimental. Yeah. Where, where, where is that for you? <laughs> it could be both. Um, I, so there's, there's two <laughs> things. Um, so one you know, I, I've created a, a personal brand that allows me to do a lot of the thinking and idea and sharing and and not driving the people crazy in my my company and, and and doing that sort of stuff, which is a healthy outlet for that energy. And I think everyone in the company is is happy to do that. Years ago, I really, I mean, they had this thing called a squirrel card, which was how they rated um, all the different ideas I had in a week. You know, which ones were squirrels and which ones were um, <laughs> someone actually, you know, created that. But I, I have really that down. So as we, as I told you, we, we have the goals and the systems and the planning. We use elements of a system called entrepreneur operating system and, and gazelles. So, so we commit to things and, and we do them. I have really tried to force my innovation into micro innovation, not macro innovation, um, coming, solving problems in new ways, not, not, Hey, we should start this. We are, we're, we're doing less things that we were doing five years ago and twice as successful. So I, I've intentionally throttled that down and people will say, you know, instead of saying, Hey, I have an idea for, you know, a new thing that we could do. It would be like, Hey, we're, we're already doing this conference and, you know, we need some ideas around better ways to fill the seats because our initial strategy isn't working. And so I, I think I've, I channeled my innovation into the things that we've committed to, uh, as an organization rather than constantly trying to come up with new ones. Just to wrap up this little shindig today, Robert, if there was if there was one thing before you finish your time on the planet that you could be excellent at, what is that thing right now that you want to be known as being, yeah, that was his thing. He he was really, really good at that. Yeah, you know, what I've identified as sort of my my personal mission is to share ideas that help people and businesses grow. So I, I, I get excited when, uh, you know, I, I've been able to come up with something or test it in our business and, and share it with someone else. And, and they tell me that that had a huge impact on their life or business. So I, I would just like to do that on a larger scale. And, and that's, you know, where I am going with some of my writing and books and taking some of the ideas that we've been really successful with at Acceleration Partners that, you know, we think, share with the world because there'd be a lot happier companies, employees, and, and productivity. We're not, we're not looking to uh, keep those to ourselves. So speaking of which, if you were now to share books, your writing, your blog, the business, wh- where do you send people, Robert? Where's the best place to find all this stuff? Yeah, the two places to go are Robert glazer.com which has sort of integrated of all the different things I'm working on and also encourage people to either you can look up Friday Ford or sign up for at FridayFWD.com for a weekly sort of inspirational note that I write it actually started writing it to my team 
uh, four years ago and now has extended to uh, over 100,000 people worldwide who've signed up to read that every week. And I've had a huge pocket in Australia signing up um, recently. So that's been, that's been really interesting. They, they, they get it a day in advance of the people here. Cause it comes, it comes for everyone <laughs> at Friday at seven o'clock in the morning. So it, it's meant at, at 7am on a Friday with your coffee or your tea to just sort of have some reflection and think about positive story or, or, or something interesting. Um, and you know, they, they, if you're interested in, in what we do as a business, that's accelerationpartners.com. Mate, I, um, from the minute I read that blog, and then I started listening to a few podcasts, other shows that you were doing. I really like, I really like your style. I like your authenticity. I like the way you present yourself. Your writing is great, and we particularly want to thank you for putting a block into your busy day to spend some time with us, mate. It's been really good. I really, I like your approach to everything you do, and you're very genuine, very authentic, very calm. I think you'd fit in really well with Aussies, mate. You got, and you got a good sense of humour. <laughs> yeah. We actually, I took my family there for, for three weeks uh, last last year, sort of a mini sabbatical, and we, we loved it there. I mean, everyone's so relaxed, and yeah, I, I would love to spend more time there. So we'll try to make that happen. Hi, I'm Maria Gronberg. I'm a climber. I climbed Mount Kilimanjaro four times and summited Mount Everest this year of May. Oh man, I'm struggling through the Mojo Show. The Mojo Radio Show. Now, the story that really caught my attention, I think it was in Fortune magazine, was the story he just told about the hotel room and how his kids wanted to leave a note and a tip for the hotel maid, which I thought was just a beautiful story. Mm. And the line that he wrote in his story, which I'm just going to reiterate to take us out, is a line by William Arthur Ward. This is the quote, "'Gratitude can transform common days into Thanksgivings.'" turn routine jobs into joy and change ordinary opportunities into blessings. And I think the challenge for all of us today is to find somebody who does a routine job, show some gratitude and turn those ordinary opportunities into blessings, whether it be a bus driver, somebody serving you coffee, a maid, somebody driving a train, a conductor, a guy emptying the rubbish, a job that you would normally go as pretty routine and give some love. I think it's just a, a cool story, and, and particularly because he did it and now his kids are driving the family and wanting to show more and more gratitude, which is hurting his hip pocket, but I just think <laughs> it's just a great story. So here's the challenge. Lola, are you ready? I'm listening. So this is Producer's Choice. Lola, play a song to do with hotels. She's on it this morning. She's had her first cup of coffee, obviously. Good, but I don't know that's really us. No. Lola, play another song to do with hotels. Welcome to the Hotel California. Such a lovely place, such a lovely place, such a lovely place. Well, topical, touring Australia soon, but... It's a classic song. It is, but gets played a lot, though. I reckon we could still do better. So let's go a little bit of creativity. Lola, play something to do with hotels or things to do with hotels. Yeah. That's more us. More us. Out where the river broke, the blood, wood and the dead. 
The Mojo Radio Show is produced and recorded in the studios of Voodoo Sound. For more tips and tools to get your mojo working, check us out on Facebook at The Mojo Radio Show or online at themojoradioshow.com. For more about Gary, see garybertwhistle.com or to polish your next audio or video production, check out voodoosound.com.au and for the right voice, realtimecasting.com. Andrew Peters speaking. See you next time.